This is Richard Pothy, again recounting the autobiography on the sidewalks of New York with the 16th chapter, The Shaping of a Socialist. When I got back to New York in early June, I paid a visit to the offices of the League for Industrial Democracy on East 19th Street. Dr. Harry Laidler, the executive secretary of the League, was glad to see me. Laidler, a small, balding man with a cherubic countenance, came out from behind his desk with a bounce to greet me. His expansive spirit made me feel at ease immediately. He invited me to the board meeting of the League, which was being held at noontime. When he introduced me to the board, Dr. Laidler told them of the success of the student chapter at the College of Worcester. He set the success in the context of what he saw as a new strategy for the Student League. He recited some of the history of the student work of the League. Student work in the past had been centered on large urban campuses, particularly in cities where there was an industrial workforce. The success of the Student League at Worcester, a small denominational school, indicated the possibility of student chapters being organized on similar college campuses. This would be the beginning of a new era for the League's work among students. I told the board about the nature of the Worcester chapter, particularly of our use of the mock presidential convention to raise economic and global issues. I mentioned my plans to make the study trip to Saskatchewan. Dr. Laidler told the board that he had offered me the job as student secretary in the fall until I returned to Worcester in January. He saw the work including college campus visits in the East and in the Midwest with the possibility of organizing new chapters. The board welcomed Dr. Laidler's plans for the Student League. Norman Thomas, one of the board members, expressed special interest in his plan. He had been invited to speak on denominational college campuses and recognized the increased interest in economic issues among the generation of post-World War II students. Our group at Worcester had, in fact, invited Norman Thomas to debate Daniel Poling, the editor of the Christian Herald, on the China issue. The Thomas Poling debate had been well attended and Thomas received a warm reception on campus. After the board meeting discussion, Nat Minkoff re-offered me the job I held at the dress joint board last summer. He told me that I could work until I had to leave for Saskatchewan. That was an added bonus for the summer. It would help defray expenses for the trip west. The interlude at the dress joint board went rapidly. Norman Tischler, who had been hired on again, was excited about my trip to Saskatchewan. He would have liked to be going with me on this venture. I spent most of my time at the dress joint board discussing and planning my trip west. This was a big journey for me. I had broken out of New York City by going to the College of Worcester. Saskatchewan was in the deep Midwest and it was another country. The gathering place for the students going to Saskatchewan was Madison, Wisconsin. We were to meet on the farm of Walter Uphoff, who was the socialist candidate for the governor of Wisconsin. I decided to hitchhike to Madison and save on travel expenses. I planned stop-off points along the way. My first stop-off point was Pittsburgh, where I was invited to stay with Horace Hollister and his wife Hilda. Horace had been the choir master for youth at Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. 
As part of his work, he also led the children's choir at Goodwill Sunday School. It was at Goodwill as a member of the choir that I had come to know him. Both Horace and his wife, Hilda, were warm, energetic persons who gave encouragement to East Side kids under their tutelage. Horace was also an important reason for my being able to make the transition from Goodwill to Madison Avenue when I was 11 years old. Horace and Hilda had been my bridge for making new friends at Madison Avenue and for keeping me in the church. In many ways, I would not be making this trip to Saskatchewan if they had not been there at a crucial time. The night before I left on my journey west to Madison, Wisconsin, I stayed in Greenwich Village. I decided to get an early start on my hitchhike west. The village was an easy jump-off spot since it was close to the Holland Tunnel for the first leg of my journey. I had several friends in the student left who had a small apartment in the village. The village in the late 40s was the Haight-Asbury in San Francisco in the 60s. The village had the original flower children. Most of them were students, but others were young people drawn to the reputation of the village as a refuge of the counterculture. The young people of the 40s were more ideologically oriented than their 60s counterparts. There was a strong pull among students to the socialist and communist left. The Cold War had yet not begun in earnest. There was still some political ground on which to stand. The election of 1948 was to be a battleground between the democratic socialist youth and those students drawn into the Marxist-Leninist-Stalinist camp. It always astonished me that most Americans did not know the difference between the U.S.-born socialist movement, which had its root in the struggles of farmers and workers in the U.S. history of the late 19th century, and the autocratic communism, which had grown out of the soil of Russian feudalism. The American socialist movement from the beginning was nourished by the hopes of working people to participate in the economic decisions which affected their lives. Whether on the farms or in the factories, working people wanted to affect changes in their work lives, in the future of their families, and in who represented them in government. The American movement was happening years before the Bolshevik Revolution had happened in Russia. Those who had joined the ideologically and Soviet-oriented communist movement found themselves directed from a Politburo which provided autocratic top-down solutions. Most of us who leaned toward the democratic socialist movement had been encouraged by the victory of the Labour Party in Great Britain after the war. We recognize the similarity of the history of the Labour Party in Great Britain with the history of democratic socialism in the United States. It was a rank-and-file political movement drawn from, from the miners, the railroad workers, and the industrial workers of the country. The Labour Party had its roots in the evolutionary Fabian socialism of 19th century England. The name Fabian was adopted from the tactics of a Roman general Fabius Maximus, the Delea who was known for his delaying tactics in Roman wars of the 3rd century B.C. Fabius got his reputation from his deliberative, long-range strategy for the victory against Hannibal. The Fabian socialists developed a policy of permeation, which worked to get their point 
a view taken up by any party who would support them. The Fabian's philosophy of change was a gradualist socialism dependent upon the tactics for winning partial victories through the passage of parliamentary legislation. We recognize in the Labour Party victory and in the legislative adoption of its democratic socialist programs the fruition of the Fabian philosophy. Many young people were drawn to the Progressive Party, which had been organized with communist support as a political alternative to the Democratic and Republican parties in the 1948 presidential election. Henry Wallace, the former Secretary of Agriculture during the New Deal, had accepted the presidential nomination of the Progressive Party. Most socialists felt that Wallace was naive or was being used by the communists to gain respectability for their goals. In New York's highly politicized environment, this was the topic of heated debate in the summer of 1948. Early on a mid-July morning, I left the village and headed for the Holland Tunnel. This was to be a thousand-mile-plus hitchhike. I had to be in Madison, Wisconsin within four days. I wore my green corduroy jacket and carried my pigskin traveling bag with a large W emblem on the side. I stationed myself at the top of the street just before drivers headed toward the toll booths of the Holland Tunnel. I held out my sign with Pittsburgh clearly marked. I learned early on that you needed to carry signs with your destination. Drivers were more willing to stop if they thought you had a place to which you were heading. It also helped if they thought you were a college student. I did my best to look like Joe College. I had to wait only 10 minutes before a driver stopped and motioned for me to get in. It was a big car. The driver was black. You're heading for Pittsburgh. That's where I'm going, back home, he said with a certain pride. How could I get so lucky? I had figured it would take me at least five rides to get to Pittsburgh. I settled in for a long ride. Unfortunately, I could not offer to drive since I had no driver's license. But he was more interested in talking than in my driving. He was in great spirits. He was a gambler and had just come from a Joe Lewis fight. Joe Lewis had been around for some time, but he still had a good punch. The odds were good and Joe Lewis had knocked out his opponent. He had bet on Lewis. So he was going home with some cash in his pocket. He liked having an intent-to-be preacher as his rider. Time went by rapidly as he recounted all the Lewis fights he had seen and he had bet on. Lewis had made him a tidy bundle. He was heading back to Pittsburgh, a happy man. We hit the Pennsylvania Turnpike, which in the 40s was one of the new throughways. He buzzed along, making good time. Midway, he got hungry. We stopped off at a Howard Johnson's, which had the franchise for the Turnpike. I had a good lunch and offered to pay my share. No, 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 this is on me, he said. It's good to treat a preacher to dinner. We reached Pittsburgh by early evening. He was heading for the black part of town. He dropped me off close to where I was heading. He told me he was happy for the conversation. It would have been a lonely drive. Good luck to you, he said. 
told him I had already been lucky to get the ride with him. All the way to Pittsburgh, he went on his way with a wave of his hand. I found a public telephone and called the Hollisters. They were waiting for me. Horace drove out to where I was and brought me home to his home. They had waited supper and were eager to hear about my time at Worcester and my journey. After supper, we recounted all the good old times at Goodwill and at Madison Avenue. We went down our list of mutual friends. Many old Madison Avenue friends had come to Worcester. I had broken ground at Worcester, and several returning servicemen decided to use their GI Bill benefit at Worcester. The conversation carried on into the late night. It was the end of a great first day on the road. We had an early breakfast. Horace knew I needed to get an early start and a good place on the road. He took me out to one of the northbound roads toward Worcester. From Worcester, I would head on to Chicago. My hitchhiker's luck was good. I made Worcester by early afternoon and dropped in at Ted and Barbara Fenton's place. It was too late to make any more miles that day. Ted invited me to stay over and begin my trek early the next morning. Again, my luck held out. I had successive rides through Ohio and Indiana and to the outskirts of Chicago. Now only one day to make Madison, Wisconsin, and the student gathering at the Uphoff's farm. This was all new territory to me. I had never been past Ohio in my three years at Worcester. The next day, my rides got me into Madison in the late afternoon. The last driver knew the Uphoff farm and was kind enough to drop me off at the road leading to the farm. My fortune had held out all the way from Greenwich Village. I felt well introduced to the hitchhiker's fraternity. I was one of the last students to arrive. Doug Kelly, the initiator of the Saskatchewan journey, greeted me warmly. He was relieved that one more of his troop had made it to Madison. He was especially impressed that I had hitchhiked the distance from New York City. This was to be my claim to fame in the group. After a great supper provided by the Uphoffs, we spent the evening getting acquainted. The students were largely from Eastern and Midwestern colleges. There were three women students and one overseas student from Germany. Although the Saskatchewan venture had been promoted largely among student liberal and left groups, the political affiliations among the group were varied. As it turned out, those within the student left were a minority in the group. A majority were political science majors who were primarily interested in the functioning of the province of Saskatchewan under the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, the CCF, the political party in power. Doug Kelly, who was a national student leader, outlined the importance of the journey we were making. It was the first of its kind. Since the provincial government of Saskatchewan was the first socialist government to be elected on the North American continent, there was much to learn. This was to be a two-week trip of inquiry and study into the policies and programs of the CCF. Our first stop in Saskatchewan was to be in Moose Jaw and the provincial convention of the CCF party. We would be learning about the CCF firsthand, especially its history and the programs which it was initiating in the province. We would then travel on to Regina, the provincial capital, to get an introduction to the functioning of a socialist government. Next, on to Saskatoon, the home of the University of Saskatchewan, to learn about the role of education in a socialist-oriented society. I had an additional item. In my initial response to the trip, I asked Kelly about the possibility of working in Saskatchewan for at least another month. 
Several others had made the same inquiry. Most of us had counted on earning some money during the summer for college expenses at the same time as we might be involved in some socialist work project. Kelly had been non-committal, but he said he would raise the work possibility with officials in the Saskatchewan government when we got to Regina. Before we prepared for our night in the barn, Kelly went over the next day's schedule. We would leave early, stop in Fargo, North Dakota, and plan to reach Jamestown, North Dakota, before evening. We would be looking at some of our U.S. efforts at producer co-ops in North Dakota. We had an invitation to stay overnight at the Farmers Union headquarters in Jamestown. The next morning, we would head for the border and enter Canada through Portal, North Dakota. There were four cars to make the journey and 18 people. Kelly had a station wagon which would carry most of the luggage. Two other cars were four-seaters. Another was an ancient Model T Ford open half truck. It was owned by E. Scott Maines, one of the oldest students in the troop. He was of medium stature, bespeckled with a crew cut. He had a quizzical, humorous, and direct manner. He was also incisive in his questions and in his comments. I liked him right away and decided to throw in my lot with him in his Model T. It might have been that my Worcester roommate, Bill Johns, who had some of the same characteristics and a vintage 1920 Model T convertible made my decisions for me. They seemed to go together. As the group shook down, two other men, David McCallum from Antioch College in Ohio and Vernon Smith from Kansas State, also signed on to make the venture with Mains and his vintage Ford. This meant two persons taking turns being squeezed into the tight truck space behind the cab, riding in the open air. It was to be an adventure all the way into northern reaches of the province of Saskatchewan, as we were to discover. The trip to Jamestown, North Dakota, in the back of the Ford, provided ample opportunity to get acquainted with my traveling companions. David McCallum was the youngest among us and had the appearance of a high school sophomore, but he was intentional in his commitment to the cooperative movement as a basis for building community. His study at Antioch College, which had a student work program as part of its educational curriculum, was preparing him to enter full-time into cooperative development. Vernon Smith came out of a Kansas farming background and was part of the stream of farm families who had been won to the socialist movement during the Depression. Maines, from Wesleyan College in Massachusetts, was the intellectual in the group who was heading for the teaching profession. He was preparing for doctoral studies by learning as much as he could from his trip to Saskatchewan. The Farmers Union in Jamestown was an inviting sight along a hard day on the road. It was used for North Dakota farmers' gatherings, so there were dining and sleeping facilities. Jamestown folk were there to greet us and make us feel welcome. They joined us for supper and helped educate us about the struggles of the farmers to gain control over their farms and their livelihood. Memories of the Depression were everywhere present as people spoke about their helplessness in the face of hard economic times. I kept reflecting back on the east side and the helplessness evicted families felt being out of the sidewalks of New York. 
People were drawn together by their common plight and laid the groundwork for a cooperative movement which could give them control over the processes of production and marketing. The story of farming people's struggle was new to me. I could only associate what they were saying to the struggles of industrial working people to build unions to withstand the vagaries of the industrial system. I had never been to a farming region, nor heard of the struggles of farmers, except in the books I read. One story stood out for most of us, John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, but there didn't seem to be the same organizing in the novel as we were hearing from the folks at the Farmers' Union. People told about discovering the effectiveness of cooperation and commitment to the future of their communities, beyond their own personal struggle. The stories made me aware of the importance of a political movement built out of economic necessity which could bind working folks together. After bidding farewell to the folks at the Farmers Union, the next morning we headed for Portal and are crossing into Saskatchewan. We crossed miles upon miles of open farmland. I had never seen so much open prairie and wheat fields. I was seeing it from the back end of Maine's Model T, and I had the sunburn to prove it. We finally arrived at the border in the early evening. The customs offices were closed. The town, what there was of it, had already shut down. We would have to make our own housing arrangements. We parked the cars near a deserted railroad yard. An empty passenger train with three coaches sat invitingly on a siding. There was just so much room in the four cars for sleeping. We all had the same idea. We distributed ourselves in three empty railroads, coach cars, and slept until morning. As soon as life returned to Portal, we crossed over into Saskatchewan and headed for Moose Jaw and the CCF convention. We arrived just after lunch as the delegates were reassembling. The convention was meeting in a school auditorium. My immediate impression was of the down-to-earth character of the delegates. Ruddy faces, stocky bills, healthy-looking people, as if they had just come to town from chores on the farm. Short sleeves and wide suspenders, calico skirts and blouses, warm welcomes to Americans who would be interested in their political experiment, lots of questions and invitations to come and visit. We joined in the proceedings of the convention, listened to the discussions of the progress of the current program of the government, health insurance, universal automobile insurance, farm cooperatives, innovative investment in new industry. We heard new proposals debated. Throughout, there was an intense interest in how the various programs were faring. There was no ideological rhetoric, just pragmatic concern that the programs were efficient and that they were serving the people. Nobody was put down during the discussions. All opinions were welcome. In a break in the proceedings, we were greeted by the Premier of the province of Saskatchewan, Tommy Douglas. Douglas welcomed us warmly and gave us a quick historical sketch of the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation. The CCF was rooted in the Depression and grew up on the prairies of Saskatchewan. 
It was the party of farmers, of preachers, and of teachers. Tommy Douglas was himself an ordained Baptist preacher, and he had been one of the founders of the CCF, and that pleased me greatly. I had already encountered skepticism within this student group about religious conviction having anything to do with social and economic justice. Most of the students I was traveling with were agnostics or just plain ignorant of religion's role in social reform. All I could say was, thank you, Tommy Douglas, thank you. Our time in Moose had been invaluable. We had seen and met the grassroots of the CCF in action. It laid the foundation for me to know that democratic socialism at the grassroots is possible. It also confirmed my belief that religious concern for justice had a role to play in creating and sustaining such a movement.